and welcome to Rising. Happy Monday, y'all. It's our show. We're glad you're here. And it's going to be a great one. Isn't that right, Brianna? Yeah, y'all, yeah, it is. <laughs> what is this new um, Southern edition? I don't know. Uh, this is the third time we're taping this intro due to technical issues. I have to have something, I have to have new material I every time I appreciate to keep it feeling it fresh. fresh. Yeah. I wasn't going to make you do the fake banter we did last time. It was really good fake banter the last time. We'll have to save that for some bloopers. All right, just let's just start the show. All right, well, there is some big news. Donald Trump leads President Joe Biden by seven points in a new head-to-head -head matchup survey shared with The Hill from Harvard Caps Harris. It seems voters for both parties are less than pleased with their respective frontrunners. Amongst Republican respondents, just 33% said they would vote for Trump in the primary if it were held today. Amongst Democratic voters, just 40% said the same for President Biden. And other general election matchups with hypothetical Republican challengers. President Biden was deadlocked with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and barely edged out former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Mm. And uh, she won't be the only South Carolinian in the race for much longer. Apparently, Tim Scott is going to enter, but we're going to talk about that later. So the polling here also found the majority of Americans do not believe Donald Trump colluded with Russia, nor do they believe the Hunter Biden laptop story is disinformation. How about that? Glenn Greenwald tweeting, a newly released Harris-Harvard poll conclusively demonstrates how radically out of touch liberal corporate media is with the views of Americans. It's not just that corporate media rejects Americans. Americans' views, they don't permit those views to be heard. So a very favorable poll result, obviously, for Donald Trump. We should start with that before getting into how most Americans yeah. are just not buying what the mainstream media is selling. But, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis's pitch to uh, to Republican elites, to I mean, to everyone, to down from elites to the base, is that you like Trump? That's fine. I like Trump, too. Love the guy. Support all his policies. <laughs> we'll implement them, but I don't have his baggage, and people like me better. I'm a better moderates, independents, people who will never vote for Trump again after you know what happened January 6th and other things. They could vote for me. Put me in. I'm a, I'm a sure bet. So he is undercut very badly every mm -hmm. time a poll like this comes out showing Trump doing better against Biden than DeSantis. Now, yeah. it's early. A lot of the country doesn't know who DeSantis is. After he announces, after he becomes more of a household name, those poll numbers could equalize a little bit. But uh, it, it does have to sting when that's his main selling point and it's undercut by yeah, development I, like I this. I think that's right. But there is another way to look at this, and that's to reflect back on 2016, when a similar polls demonstrated that Bernie Sanders was the better bet to beat Donald Trump in head-to-head matchups as compared to Hillary Clinton, who was a historically unfavorable candidate. But as long as Hillary Clinton was still polling as also beating Trump, I feel like it made the Democratic mm. Party feel justified in saying, we're going to get behind her because she doesn't have the baggage, because she's not a Democratic social, she's not going to call us out on all of our, corrupt, uh, uh, our corruption, et cetera, the way that Bernie Sanders would. And in a similar way, the, the Republican Party might decide, OK, as long as it seems we seem fairly confident that DeSantis can still pull this one out and win. We still might be interested in backing his campaign at least up into a point. You know, so it, it, the, the orientation that the party might bring to this versus the orientation that voters might bring to this are a little bit different here. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I think it. I think it hits at his main selling point. But again, it's er, it's very early. Yeah. People don't know who he is. Politicos do. People paying close attention to the news. You you know, you watching at home, watching a national news show every day. You know who he is, but. Your your family members, your friends, working people who you know don't have don't follow the news, political news. They follow local news. Mm -hmm. Don't follow political news with like the same 
zeal that we whose jobs it is to cover it do, they don't necessarily know who DeSantis is yet. Trump has, you know, universal household name, Hillary Clinton universal household name. Joe Biden is the president now. He's he's very well known to everybody in the country. So they have something DeSantis doesn't yet have. He's a he's governor of Florida. He's not a national political figure. He's entering yeah. national politics, but he's a he's a state leader. Also, we have yet to see the clause come fully out yeah. as Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis go more openly against each other as Ron DeSantis announces, and then we see more um, kind of public mainstream discourse from Donald Trump about his his content, the other contenders in the race. We saw very little from him at the CNN town hall uh, weighing in on other candidates. There was one Ron DeSanctimonious that was kind of thrown out there, but otherwise not very much on that at all. And historically, Republican challengers to Donald Trump haven't fared very well when they're right in the lion's eye of his insults. We'll see if over the last, you know, four, five, six years, people have figured out the, the magic formula at withstanding Trump's slings and arrows. Indeed. So the rest of this poll, also very interesting to us, uh, finding, and not surprisingly, that most Americans are just not at all, uh, they, they were not duped, they were not fooled with what has become the dominant narrative of your CNNs and MSNBCs and New York Times and Washington Post, et cetera, that, uh, about, about the influence of Russia in our elections, the, the spread of mis viral misinformation, Russian-related, uh, the laptop story. No, most people, at least who answered this poll, Understand that that was that that was an attempt to trick people. That that was some bad information yeah. itself that the mainstream media really bought into and and threw off the narratives relating to that for years. I mean, honestly, I guess on one hand it is reassuring that 59 percent of Americans see through it. But on the flip side of that, it is kind of concerning that 41 percent of Americans still don't. All these years later, when. I think the reporting has been very clear. Even the, the Biden family doesn't challenge the authenticity of the laptop itself or the contents of the laptop to the extent that anybody is curious to start looking into it. There is obviously a lot of video, et cetera, that is very difficult to get around if you were in a position of trying to deny the veracity of the contents of the laptop. Not that I'm saying that those videos are what's as politically important as some of the other claims that people are trying to make about, um, you know, ill-gotten money and Biden's awareness of it and those kinds of things that have yet to be proven. But in terms of the authentic authenticity question, all that existing, the stories that we've been reporting on with respect to the Twitter files and suppression of the laptop. All of that and 41% of Americans still believe mm. that it was fake. I mean, it does say something about the enduring power of legacy media. I guess you can see it that way. I mean, you know, we're such a split down the middle country. We're such a polarized country that, you know, that every issue has to be has to be slotted neatly into Team Blue or Team Red. And it breaks down that way, by the way. 79% yeah. um, of Republicans believe the laptop is real. 21% believe it's disinformation. 41% of Democrats believe it's real. 59% believe it's disinformation. Frankly, I'm kind of surprised that 21% of Republicans think that the Hunter Biden laptop is disinformation. But again, the country is so evenly split that if you get can even get an issue to like 60-40, yeah. that, that shows... That's the power of whatever the, the 60 mm -hmm. side is, in this case, the side knowing that the laptop story is real. Russiagate was you know, a fraud, media perpetrated fraud. Um, but th there, there's always a core base of people around the other side because things are so enduringly, predictably tribal. Right. And this, this part of the poll, I think, has some interesting implications for 
both Donald Trump's strategy and what the Democrats' counter-strategy is going to be moving into a more of a general election context. As Glenn tweeted, large majorities of Americans say they are not surprised to learn the FBI abused its power in the 2016 Trump-Russia probe to help Biden. We have Republicans really hitting hard on the weaponization of the FBI, these kind of defund the FBI movements, this really deep criticism of the intelligence agencies. You have Democrats like RFK Jr. also really beating that drum and emphasizing that as part of his run. And I'm, I wonder what will happen to establishing de Democrats if they don't tap into or at least acknowledge that there is this deep distrust of intelligence agencies and the perception that they are rigged, particularly mm. in favor of liberal candidates. Well, coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about some examples of law enforcement, including the FBI, badly overreaching, abusing their power, giving people all the reason to uh, register in these surveys that they don't trust the FBI. And also we're going to talk a little bit about RFK Jr. actually actually being left out of one of these polls. Mm. So make any sense to me. We'll dig into that. More rising right after this. In 2020 and 2021, the FBI reportedly misused a digital surveillance tool more than 278,000 times, including against January 6th riot suspects, Black Lives Matter protesters, crime victims, and 19,000 donors to a congressional candidate considered, quote, a target of foreign influence. Hmm. This is all according to a newly unsealed court document from April 2022, where FBI officials admit they admit to a, quote, misunderstanding between bureau staff and Justice Department lawyers about how to correctly use electronic databases, which allows data to be collected about U.S. citizens under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, better known as FISA. According to the Washington Post, the main purpose of the database is to target foreign interference and terrorism, and the FBI is authorized to search the database, quote, only when agents have reason to believe that such a search will produce information relevant to foreign intelligence purposes or evidence of crimes. In June of 2020, the FBI searched for data on 133 people arrested, quote, in connection with civil unrest and protests following the death of George Floyd. After January 6, 2021, the FBI ran 23,132 separate inquiries to find evidence of possible foreign influence, but the DOJ concluded that there was no factual basis to believe that the searches would find foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime, the Washington Post reports. According to the April 2022 document, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which oversees Section 702, told the FBI that if the agency does not fix the misuse, the court will mandate changes to FBI practices. This is a doozy, and I think is part and parcel of what the combined concerned communities on the left and the right have been saying for years, for decades, about the FBI. This misuse, although characterized by various camps as partisan, and at times it very much is because of the nature of partisan swings in the country. Over time and over the aggregate, it hurts everybody who's vulnerable and anti-establishment in the country. The whole purpose of this database was it was authorized to look at potential foreign interference, foreign intelligence. But in the process of collecting that intelligence, they now have this bolus of information that catches up all of these domestic actors, American citizens. And they have been wanting, wantonly over a quarter of a million times, just between 2020 and 2021 alone, run searches 
targeting American citizens who were involved in very political events, Black Lives Matter 1-6, when there was absolutely no evidence that there was anything having to do with foreign interference in their activities. And frankly, the parts of the, the, the document that was disclosed that's supposed to explain the rationale of the government for doing these searches on these particular individuals, despite very superficially not having any relationship to foreign intelligence, are so redacted that the FBI's own thinking isn't even clear from what they've disclosed so far. Yeah, this is a great uh, case to illustrate, as you said, the threats from law enforcement to uh, to political activist activity on all sides of the political spectrum. They went after Black Lives Matter protest and January 6th protesters, protesters, the extreme left, the extreme right, um, to, and they, on, on the understanding the suspicion that there will be foreign involvement in these groups. There, there can never be just a spontaneous political movement arising in this country. The government will automatically think it has something to do with Russia. Yeah. Or, or if they don't actually yeah. think that, they will use that excuse, use excuse. to look. And, and this is why you know we should have been skeptical going all the way back to how we responded to September 11th. It was the, the government said at every level, members of both parties, President Bush and Democrats, most of them went along with it, that the threat the foreign threat of terrorists is so great that we must we must uh, abridge our civil liberties mm -hmm. here at home to contend with that threat. And yep. we have seen how the excuse of foreign danger has has limited our civil liberties at every time. There is so much wrong with FISA the way it works. We previously found out that it is many of the, these courts. So either they can if, if there's a if there's a foreign threat, the president has pretty broad authority to just to just order his people mm -hmm. to do whatever they want. How it's supposed to work otherwise, if there's no evidence, is that there's, the government has to go to a court, the FISA court, that will authorize a search of, of this kind of, of data, a data mm -hmm. search. Um, what we found in the past is that the FISA courts were just rubber stamping this, mm -hmm. it, it, just like anything else. So easy to get a warrant. I mean, you know, not always. It depends kind of the, how civil libertarian the mm -hmm. judge involved is. But the FISA courts over and over again were just routinely authorizing uh, surveillance of Americans. And remember, the, go the government, James Clapper, said that there was not this kind of routine surveillance of Americans mm -hmm. going on. Turns out that was a lie. He mm -hmm. lied before Congress. He's never suffered any consequences for that. In fact, I think I saw him on TV the other day on MSNBC or <laughs> CNN. Course. Or something. Uh, it's uh, it's it's it, Americans are correct to fear and suspect that these agencies are abusing their power to spy on you because they are. Yes, this is this is digital stop and frisk. I'm yeah. sorry. This is akin to saying, well, if we just look close, if you, if you look closely enough at one population, if you target one population enough, you're going to turn up disproportionately potential crimes, mistakes in your tax form, whatever it is, and they can get you if they scrutinize you hard enough. This is why so many people were frustrated with the draconian police policies in New York, why they were declared unconstitutional. And now on a national basis, using this intelligence database, they are looking at various populations and saying, okay, Black Lives Matter protesters, what do we got on them? Okay, one-six protesters, what do we got on them? And using it to potentially constrain the ability of those groups to protest and have the same kind of consequences for their actions as any other citizen in the United States of America. We are in a very authoritarian place right now where we have you know, dozens of cop city protesters that have been jailed and facing, who are facing high sentences as a consequence of simply distributing pamphlets about the protest of this city, uh, of this um, 
this COP facility that is also an environmental disaster because they're cutting down all these trees to, to build it, and which has absolutely no public buy-in from the citizens of, uh, uh, of Atlanta, which we've seen through these seven-hour-long hearings they've had, where absolutely nobody gets up and testifies in support of what they're doing here. And there's largely radio si silence, particularly from the liberal media, about even the issues that are ostensibly left-leaning in nature, which is why I think there's an amazing opportunity if if the kind of the partisan veil of some of these arguments about the problems with the intelligence agencies is able to fall away and there can be a real bipartisan solidarity against addressing some of these issues, it could be a really powerful moment in American history. Yeah, and keep in mind that, you know, the geniuses in our national law enforcement, they think that if you're amplifying talking points that are similar to talking points that anyone affiliated with Russia is saying, that you must be uh, captured by right. Russian interests. Remember, that's what they've said. So it is so easy to imagine someone, you know, just tweet on either side. On the as, as you brought up before, the, an example on the left saying that you know black people are not treated correctly in this country, or on the on the conservative side saying. Um, you know, that the, the, we should stop funding the Ukraine intervention or something. Um, how an FBI person, because of what we've seen from the Twitter files, could conclude, well, they're, they must be Russian. They're coordinating. They're coordinating with Russian. They must be, they, yeah. there's some formal influence going on there when it's just, okay, they happen to have said things right. that align with what some Russian interest is saying. That actually isn't coordination. That's just, that's just people expressing their views, which is yeah. protected in this country. Right. So here's what I want to know. FISA is coming up for reauthorization at the end of the year. And here is my, you know, my, my, my challenge to Republicans. Vote against this. Mm -hmm. Vote against it. Uh, because Republicans, and, and, and Democrats too, Democrats who purport to care about civil liberties, and some Democrats, you know, as the, as the kind of specter of 9-11 got a little bit more in the distance. Mm -hmm. You had some Democrats waking up to, how, oh my God, we signed away our rights because of the Patriot Act. Um, you Democrats get with you Republicans who say Trump has been unfairly targeted by the FBI and the, the deep state is out to get, you know, conservatives and conservative activists. Let's all get together and actually vote against a, a, a tool that the government uses to abuse our rights. Because I'll hear, you hear a lot of complaints. Yeah. And then when it comes up for a vote, these things get authorized like you know, 500 to two or something. There's, you know, just quirky, like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul type people vote against it. Everyone else votes for it. Uh, I would like to see, let's see more people in the, no, the government has abused this power. You don't get it anymore. Yeah, I'd love to see something maybe from Barbara Lee, a, a classically sure. brave anti-war voice back in the day, obviously now running for, for Senate. I would love to hear some things from Democrats about this, especially these left-leaning ones. We're rising right after this. Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jamal Bowman are continuing to throw jabs after their confrontation on the steps of Capitol Hill. Now, just as a reminder, here's what MTG had to say about the interaction last week. Jamal Bowman shouting at the top of his lungs, cursing, calling me a horrible, calling me a white supremacist, which I take great offense to. That is like calling a person of color the N-word, which should never happen. Calling me a white supremacist is equal to that, and that is wrong. Yelling, shouting, raising his voice. He has aggressive, uh, his physical mannerisms are aggressive. And he just recently uh, shoved Thomas Massey um, at just outside the House chamber. I think there's a lot of concern about Jamal Bowman. So, and, and I am concerned about it. I feel threatened by him. Bowman has responded to Marjorie Taylor Greene on MSNBC. Let's watch that. It's so nonsensical that it's comical. Uh, you can see clearly in the video that we were like 
playfully jousting yes, with each other. She was laughing. I was laughing. We were talking about each other's party and certain issues. Um, so the, the demeanor and the disposition, you know, on the steps, it was, it was, it was playful. We were, we were going after each other. Yeah. So for her the next morning to say what she said, I mean, it's a complete 180, number one. It's no longer comical now because now you are using historical racist tropes toward black men, menacing his mannerisms. I'm afraid that's the stuff that got, you know, Trayvon Martin killed, Tamir Rice killed, uh, Michael Brown killed. I mean, I believe Officer Darren Smith literally talked about his presence and his strength as an excuse for killing him. And this has happened to black men historically. And so now we're in a dangerous space. And that's why I wanted to be really, really clear uh, to reporters today how reckless and dangerous her statements were. And she should know better. I believe she knows better. Here is the original confrontation. Love to see the hard work of politics getting done in a real effective way. They seem to just kind of be yelling at each other very incoherently. Um, he's yelling at her about QAnon. She's saying he lost the migrants. Um, yeah, okay, look, I, I don't think her framing of this was exactly fair. I don't think he was, he was clearly not threatening her. He was, he was not as heated as his exchange with Thomas Massey, which, which was pretty heated. Um, he was yelling at her, and— And was she yelling at him? And she was yelling back. And were there gesticulations like this from her and gesticulations like this from him? I saw, what do you I, mean gesticulations like that? Like that they were both making oh, arm gestures at each other. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm saying she was she was doing some fist bumps and you know thrust yeah. in the air, and he was gesticulating. Everybody was gesticulating. They both leaned into each other and leaned back at times. I could. I'm sorry. I'm struggling to distinguish any difference between their behavior in that clip. She was smiling. It was playful. They're standing in front of a phalanx of cameras and media. It would seem to me to be rather unbelievable. I mean, she's a bigger, unbelievable. more intense. He's a dude. She's a. Right. So it would be unbelievable for me to think that she actually felt herself under physical threat there. Yeah, she I don't. She wasn't behaving in a way that suggested that she was scared or intimidated. She certainly didn't leave. And so the question becomes, you know, what is gained by her framing that exchange in that way? Yeah, he, she framed it as uh, a little bit that she was uh, felt, feeling threatened by him, uh, which maybe she was, but it doesn't look like a very threatening uh, exchange to me. And then he, fr but then he framed it as like she was trying to get him killed by police or no, something. No, it's not that she's trying to I get him killed by police. Very, but like, it is 
true what he said, that the characterization of black men, regardless of their size, frankly, or how intimidating they actually are outside of people having the belief that people with dark skin are naturally violent and aggressive and stupid and threatening and all the ways that polls demonstrate that most people do, or not most people, but many people do feel that way, leads police and others to engage with them in ways that would not engage with other people and to perceive the threat level as higher than they were in other people. He specifically brought up Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old with a toy gun in a park not doing anything that violates the law, somebody called the police on him because they perceived him to be an adult with a, a real gun in a way that there's some question if that they would have, one, made the police call in the first place, and two, if the, if the police would have arrived on the scene and shot a white 12-year-old child in two seconds in the same I mean, way. Very and well we can go have. back and we can say, yes, 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 this absolutely would have happened, absolutely would have happened. But you talk to the police after these incidents, and they tell them themselves, just like he said in the case of George Floyd, where he was described, I forget exactly what it was, but in these kind of like beast-like terms, that are used to justify the subjective fear of the person who has killed the black individual. Because the law says that your subjective fe feelings as a cop can uh, exculpate you from responsibility in these kind of situations. And juries and others tend to side with police officers because they share this belief, this perception of black men as being more violent and more hostile. Now, you you know, you even kind of said this to yourself in the clip. Well, he's a big guy. He's towering over. Okay, so if this if the fact that you're bigger means you can't behave in the exact same way as somebody else and have an argument and have a playfulness and move your arms back and forth. I think it's more the male kind of female dynamic here, not a white black dynamic. I think is the key. Um, look. You can't convince people if they don't want to see things, but a lot of the country experiences this and feels it very viscerally. And I don't know what to tell people. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really have the energy, I don't have the interest in arguing it. The reality, I think, I think it, 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 it belies reality. <laughs> that if, you're, if people are gonna sit there and argue that the, our subjective understanding of what seems intimidating is affected by race in the United States of America, where we had 400 years of slavery, 100 years of racial apartheid, and you know, 100 years of mass incarceration. Well, there are obviously, there are obviously cases like the ones you brought up, where it seems pretty clear that that was a factor. I'm not saying that's not the case, although I'm sure you know as well as I do that the statistics of how much more likely police are to have this kind of negative encounter with, we know that black police officers actually have I yes, think, similar rates to white do. police officers. Everybody feels that black really, people are intimidating. Is it as much about race as it is about police having unaccountability for how they interact with That's citizens? We well. know there is there's police abuse of white people, lower class people 100%. in general, who, some, who are disproportionately black, but all of that is yeah, going on. I, that's absolutely um, true. So here's the thing. If I were being called a white supremacist, and regardless of if you agree with this trope, I think it is a very, it's very well known as a trope that black people, black men are characterized as violent and thuggish and threatening in context 
where they can be sitting there. I mean, how many cases do we have? The police were called on those four black guys having a Starbucks coffee a couple well, of years I, ago. I, 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 I'm, I know, I'm just, but that, I'm just saying. None of that, I, we need robust statistical. All, all I'm saying is knowing that's a trope. You can think that those stories are ginned up by the media and that it's not fair and that it's misrepresented and all of that stuff. But knowing that is a trope, the choice to go ahead after smiling and laughing with Jamal Bowman to go on TV and then deploy that trope when we have camera evidence that you were smiling and not giving any evidence of being intimidated on the scene is a choice. And all I'm saying is that that's not a choice that's going to quell people's perceptions of you as someone who, if not a white supremacist, is gauging in white supremacist tropes. I don't think that's helping her argument. So if she had an issue with Jabal Bowman substantively, if she felt fearful at the time, I think she should have erased that issue at the time. But the way this has played out, I don't think is very good optics for Marjorie Taylor Greene if she wants to beat some of these accusations, whether you think they are fair or not, of having white, embracing white supremacist ideology or being a white supremacist herself. I think they're both members of Congress. They should both have um, a little bit of a thicker skin. Um, they're there to debate actual ideas, not to hopefully yell at each other in the most unproductive way on the steps of the Capitol. They were having a very that. unproductive exchange, um, that she was kind of put off by it or claims to have been put by it, I think is not a good look for her because, sorry, that's your job. You have to endure people talking at you aggressively, I guess. And uh, that, But I, I also didn't like his turn as the kind of making it the way he made it and woe is me. It looks bad. To my mind, for both of them, but. So if she deploys, whether or not it's intended this way, but if she deploys what is, in fact, a classic trope, whether or not you think it's real or not, if she deploys a classic trope that stigmatizes black men as disproportionately threatening, you think it's his obligation to say nothing about I it? I mean, he called her a white supremacist or a white nationalist or whatever he said before she well, did that. Well, to be clear also, he didn't call her a white supremacist. That, that's that been flubbed a little bit. Um, let's, I, I, I want to pull up the exact words that he actually used. Um, uh, I, well, well, maybe we can come back to it or someone can, can put it in mm -hmm. my ear. Um, but the, the point of the matter is, I, I think that that- It looks like, to me, like he's looking for a, a starring role in the resistance or in the guy feuding with Republicans camp. I, um, I think that that's true, and I said this when we covered so, this last week, that there is a way that he is clearly courting a certain kind of media coverage, and he's bombastic in a way that I don't think is actually helpful to progressive interests or potentially even especially pr productive to his own kind of like professional trajectory. I think that all of that is true. But, I mean, this chicken and the egg thing is a little ridiculous. If, 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 this, this, again, reminds me of the Elon Musk stuff. If someone calls you something or calls someone else something, like, let's say a shooter, a white supremacist, a swastika-bearing Nazi, self-identified Nazi, and suddenly a lot of people are coming to their defense saying, oh, it couldn't be a Nazi who did this, you have to start to ask the question, why are you defending this guy? No one's even making an analogy between you and this person. No one's trying to lump you in with his ideology. But now that you are running, trying to run cover for this person, it starts to feel suspicious. Why do you care? How does it affect you negatively if someone who's a Nazi is perceived to have done, done something like this? Now, I think that you shouldn't call people white supremacists unless you have substantial proof. 
like, I don't know, a giant swastika tattoo on your chest. Never mind. Okay, but now you're that's, talking about a that's different not thing, Marjorie Taylor not Green. the Marjorie Taylor So Green I, I situation. can accept that, that, that the word is being overused and that Jamal Bowman was in a, did so inappropriately. If you have concerns about specific things that she said and done, I think that you should bring those up and make an argument for why you think they were appropriate or racially motivated or et cetera. I do think that he made a case for why her deploying that trope was racially motivated. And I think that that's fair. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Why was Tucker Carlson really fired from Fox News? The writer Chadwick Moore, who has written a new biography of Tucker Carlson, thinks he knows the reason and had this to say in a video he made today. Let's watch. I've also seen the monologue that Tucker planned to deliver on Monday, April 24th, before his show was abruptly taken off the air. That monologue dealt with, among other things, investigations around January 6th, and particularly Ray Epps, the only person captured on video inciting people to violence at the Capitol that day, and allegedly an FBI informant who still has not been arrested or charged. Ironically, a good part of the monologue also dealt with the people and forces that are trying to silence him, like AOC and others in government. It has now been reported that his firing was a condition demanded by Dominion as part of the settlement with Fox. Although Dominion has denied this, my sources have intimate knowledge of the situation and they have assured me, even before this news leaked, that that is in fact the truth. So Tucker Carlson retweeted that. He mm -hmm. quote tweeted it with the, those eyes, you know, the two eyes mm -hmm. people do when they're like, looking, mm -hmm. look intently at this. <laughs> so what's the implication here? Well, well I think it's, the, the implication is because Tucker retweeted it, I think that's giving some additional credence to the claim that this might have been having something to do with the Dominion lawsuit. Right. Um, but and what, then, sorry, go ahead. And then also that Tucker was planning to do even more coverage of, of January 6th, of the theory, very popular on the right, has not been really, uh, I mean, the theory that that individual, Ray Epps, we've talked about this on mm -hmm. the show, was an FBI agent. There, no evidence has come forward to verify that. Mm -hmm. You can see him on video before the day before the Capitol um, urging um, illegal action. In fact, actually other protesters say, Fed, no, 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 because they know the person <laughs> urging illegal action in other cases has turned out to be a federal informant. Um, the, and Ray Epps also that you know made statements, perhaps exaggerating, but claiming to have had a really important role um, in 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 organizing the, the the whole thing. He was then he was on uh, what well, was on 60 Minutes, I think, uh, talking about how you know this I'm, I'm I've tur been turned into the scapegoat, et cetera. Mm. You know, poor poor me. But, uh, so Carlson, Tucker was going to do more reporting on that. So Tucker Carlson obviously has talked at length about Ray Epps in the yes. past. It didn't seem to be an issue for Fox News at that time. I completely get how Tucker retweeting this clip corroborates the theory that it was a Dominion lawsuit condition. I'm just a little confused about what we're supposed to read into the content of his Monday remarks. Because it, it did seem like he was, he was making the argument kind of tacitly that he was both, both canceled because of the uh, Dominion lawsuit, but also because of the content going forward right. was distasteful to Fox News. Chadwick Moore is suggesting the AOC, I think they were trying to get him off. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, don't, I just, I'm, I'm just trying to work out what 
what yeah. argument is being made. I mean, AOC has, to there. be clear, you know, multiple times said that, you know, letting t uh, Tucker be on the air is, is like For a sure, but, but is the argument that but... Fox News is in cahoots with AOC, like an agreement, locked arms with AOC, or is being influenced by AOC in any way and getting rid of Tucker Carlson? Or is it that they were afraid of being exposed to additional liability because I, yeah, of the Yeah, I, I think what I'm— Again, what this person's view is, and I don't know whether this is accurate, but it's news, I think, that Tucker um, quote tweeted it. This person is saying that um, they had to get rid of him because of some handshake agreement from the Dominion lawsuit and then wanted to get rid of him before he was going to deliver this monologue. It'd be interesting to see if he actually does go ahead and deliver the monologue. I mean, just the, the fact— Now he can do whatever he wants. Sure. I mean, the fact that he has given so many— monologues that I would argue are much more controversial than this one seems to be based on the description and what we know here. Again, mm -hmm. who knows? We haven't heard it. Does make me a little skeptical that it's about the particular Monday content as opposed to the Dominion lawsuit. Because again, over and over again, what we see is that money talks. The decisions that are being made in terms of how Twitter administers its content the decisions that are being made by other social media companies, the decisions that are being made politically, you know, when you bend the knee to Modi or some other authoritarian government and that, you know, is, is cutting against your spe free speech advocacy, all of these decisions end up being made for financial reasons. And that's not necessarily an indictment. It's just that when we're constantly talking about things in free speech terms or substance terms, and it's really about other kind of decision making, I think it can obscure the story. So I do think there's a world in which Fox News could stand behind everything that Tucker Carlson says, could obviously appreciate how uh, remunerative his presence on Fox News has been for years. But at the end of the day, the how many billion dollars again <laughs> of that they had to pay to Dominion just wasn't worth the squeeze of what Tucker was bringing in. And so they had to cut ties. Yeah. Seven hundred eighty seven million. Right. That's what the yeah, lawsuit that's was. Right. Yeah. Um, so obviously, uh, right now, Tucker is in this dispute with the company. Uh, he wants his freedom. He wants to speak. It's been about a month since the firing. I think it's been exactly a month, actually, mm. which also raises that. So, and then Tucker, so it's Chadwick Moore, the, again, the person who did that video, who we just watched, has a biography of Tucker coming out. Um, he suggests, and again, I, I don't, I can't verify what his level of access to Tucker was, but the fact that again, the Tucker account tweeted this, mm -hmm. suggests to me that there is some level of, of cooperation or coordination between them. He says he had ac a lot of access to Tucker and to Tucker's staff prior to the, and then as it was happening, as the ouster was taking place. Uh, Tucker right now obviously is, you know, he's, he has retained the attorney. He wants a break with Fox. He wants to be able to speak his mind. He's said he's launching a show on Twitter. Um, and, we, and we should say Fox and Dominion have both denied that the lawsuit required them to axe Tucker. They've said that has nothing to do with it. Um, they've not offered a reason beyond that. It's, uh, it's a real interesting time period. So this could be, you know, we, we've reported previously that Tucker signaled to his allies that they can start speaking out more loudly on his behalf. Um, it's a really interesting time. Yeah, I, I'm curious from a kind of optics perspective, what does it mean to people? What does it mean to conservatives if Tucker was let go because of the Dominion lawsuit versus because of his, because of a difference of opinion on, on content substantively? 
Because there's, there's, Fox has denied it. Fox, you know, wants to be in a position where it says that the choice to let him go has nothing to do with what happened at Dominion. It's not clear to me that that's for legal reasons mm -hmm. or because of the kind of public perception reasons. reasons. Right. But I can see an argument where Fox is in a better position saying, hey, we love Tucker, but we're, we were forced to let him go. Like, <laughs> we love Tucker, we agree with Tucker, we support Tucker, but we were strong darn into letting him go. And Tucker, similarly, I feel like is in a more, um, is in a, in a better position to claim that he was wronged if he can say Fox News chose to let me go. They've been throttling me. They've been trying to negatively impact my content. They didn't want me to give my Monday monologue versus, well, but for a lawsuit in which they were exposed for nearly three quarters of a billion dollars of liability, I would have continued to have a relationship with the program. It seems to be, there's something a little wishy-washy about this argument here, and, and I, 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 I'm not entirely well, sure who benefits from this, the claim, one way or the other, that it was really Dominion that caused Tucker to be terminated. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I, from Tucker's perspective, he has said he does not, or the, the argument that his camp has advanced is that it's a breach of contract on the company's part because he was guaranteed that proceeding with this lawsuit was not going to open him up to a, a kind of risk or embarrassment. Um, that they, you know, they, they could have either not fought the lawsuit as long as they did and maybe pay out something without this, or they could have actually fought it to the jury. I mean, this is what he's arguing. His camp is arguing that the way they did it negatively impacted they him should have and gone that to that trial. was a. Well, I or mean, they should have paid out more money and not fired anyone. Remember <laughs> that part of the timing of the settlement was right before Rupert Mur Murdoch was set to give a de deposition, right? Right. So those are the trade-offs. We already found out so much about behind-the-scenes communications that, frankly, also, I think, reflected poorly on Tucker Carlson and some of the other Fox News hosts right. insofar as they had public positions and private positions about things like Stop the Steal and Donald Trump. Right. You could have, what I'm saying is you could have paid out before any of that happened. Yeah, but how much? Well, that, that's the question. Right. But, is, but is I think Fox everything News that happened pay is probably a billion dollars, right? Well, it could have. Maybe they would have had to pay less. I mean, the developments of the case, as it was proceeding, were perceived to be favorable to Dominion, that it was verging Correct. even further in their direction. So maybe they would have had to pay out less, and they would have saved themselves some of these disclosures if they had agreed to settle earlier. I think that's, again, I'm not saying that's the case. I think that's what Tucker's side is arguing. Sure, but no, no, nobody, nobody's going to... Unless they had knowledge of what the communications were, which I've, a lot of it was text messages and stuff that the company wouldn't necessarily have knowledge of. Text they only knew about them because of the lawsuit. No, no, but, but I'm saying not knowing how exposed you were mm -hmm. is going to preclude you from being willing to expose uh, to settle for any 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 meaningful sum of money. A priori. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, like, but for a wistfully thinking, you know, if I had hindsight as 2020, but realistically speaking, strategically speaking, I don't know how the Tucker camp can really argue before we knew we had any legal liability, we should have given them hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it would have been, even if it's half of what they had to pay. You know, you can see from Fox's perspective, not knowing what the documents were going to reveal. I'm going to pay you $350 million, let's say, to settle. Mm -hmm. Now, if they did know, if they had any sense of what the internal if they did their own internal doc review and saw their exposure and still chose to wait as long as it did to settle, that is negligent. I can understand why the Tucker camp would be upset. Yeah.
Yeah. Very interesting stuff. We will continue to follow that. More rising right after this. A New York City Bellevue hospital worker was caught in a spat with a group of young men over a city bike last week. The video shows Sarah Comrie, who was white, yelling, help, help me, please help me, as she and one of the men argued over who paid for the bike. The man said, this is not your bike, but is my bike on my account. Please move. Here's some more of the interaction. Now, in the aftermath of the viral video, some called Comrie City by Karen, and she was placed on leave from her job. Comrie's lawyers say she has receipts proving that she paid for the bike, and she accused the media of, quote, outrageously portraying his client as a racist. This is her attorney who was trying to steal a city bike from a black man. YouTuber Jeff Waldorf, who posted a video about the matter, tweeted, I've taken down the city bike Karen story based on new information from Sarah Comrie's lawyers, having receipts showing that she had, in fact, purchased the bike. And I apologize for getting it wrong and for any harassment directed towards Comrie as a result of my video. She was, I believe, suspended from her job as mm -hmm. well. I think that, Did you that's read that? true. Um, or, or like outright fired or some yeah. kind of, um, which that seems pretty, uh, uh, yeah, suspended as a worker of the hospital. I think that's very extreme based on, so we've watched that clip now a few times. Um, I don't know what happened before that. I don't know what happened after that. That's a, that's a snapshot into this interaction between the two people. No, she doesn't come off looking particularly well here. I don't know how they were behaving to her before. Maybe it was, it was perfect. It seems like a and genuine misunderstanding yeah, between two people. We don't people. know, to be clear, how anyone was behaving toward anybody before. We don't sure. know how she was behaving. Yes. We don't know how they were behaving. It's so not just honestly, one Yes. I, honestly, I don't understand how anyone could make any judgment about it. looks like just an un unfortunate negative interaction between two people, both of whom believed that they were in the right. A, a genuine misunderstanding. I I've had this where it happened before where I reserve a scooter. Sometimes I do it from my apartment before I leave in the morning. I reserve the I see that there's the, now I'm taking the spin ones because it's all that's left to me because of what the fascist in the city <laughs> planning transit, that's a whole different, we won't go there. I'm not happy with them, but we're not gonna go there. They, I, I reserve my little scooter and I walk down and, and, and it's happened before where someone's you know trying to get on it and they'll find out that they can't, that they're locked out of it because I already have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, because I'm not, crazy and trying to have fights with people <laughs> on the street, just wait for them to figure it out. Yeah. Or if there's another one, I'll just uh, cancel it and go to that one. Mm -hmm. Or I'll say, oh yeah, I've already reserved that. It's fine. Um, they had a negative interaction and you know, everything is recorded now, so you know we wouldn't have any idea, obviously, about this if everybody didn't have their cell phone cameras out all the time, looking for the next like vi viral clip of people having a bad time in public. Um, I think it's a, a huge rush to judgment that she's already like lost her again. How, how can they make any determination about what actually happened based on that clip? What they, you're telling me they've conducted a full investigation of exactly what happened. Something that didn't even involve well, the hospital didn't like is take not place in lost the, her job. Sure. You know, if there was any limitation to her pay, I would agree. Also, that's premature and inappropriate. It doesn't even have anything to do with the hospital. She doesn't. It didn't happen at the hospital. I mean, it's. I don't understand. Right. So I, I, I don't understand why it's any, anybody's I, business. Frankly. I agree that the professional consequences, especially before all the facts come out, seem to be inappropriate, especially if there was any impact on her livelihood in particular. Absolutely, no matter what the outcome of this 
is going to be. However, I do think that the reason that people record things and that there has now been a long history of black people recording um, police interactions in particular and without the video recording of George, uh, George Floyd being killed or any number of other instances of police killings, there would probably be much less accountability than we've had in recent years, precisely because the proliferation of cell phone cameras. Sure, but this many, is a police encounter. But many people do start recording when there's interactions of an uh, interracial nature, especially involving black men, because there is a long history of people lying about what happens in these events. And black people have been able to get justice more recently because they've been able to get things on camera. And you don't know how things are going to escalate. And you don't know how what people are, what arguments people are going to make about what you said, what you didn't say, um, how you behaved, whether or not you're perceived as aggressive, mm -hmm. um, threatening, as we talked about in an earlier segment. So you hear those men there saying repeatedly, I'm not touching you. I'm not, this is my bite. No, it turns out that it seemed like they were wrong. And that's, a right. horrible and, misunderstanding. And, and there's some suggestion. Again, but I don't know. It, it I can't see like, this earlier part of the video. They, she says, or her attorney says that he, the whoever the person, I can't even tell from watching that video who the other person is, but uh, uh, took, grabbed the bike, didn't touch her, but gra grabbed the bike and then like relocked it. Mm -hmm. So then it, it, it's almost like it would have canceled her. Like she'd taken it out and then it like had canceled her her trip or her ride. I don't know exactly how this riding program works. Something like it, that. It seems to me that the misunderstanding was the, the bike had been checked out. They both claimed that they were the ones that ch checked the bike yeah. out. And if you think it's you and someone else is going to take your bike, you want to relock it so that you're not charged for whatever they do with the bike. Both yeah. parties have an interest in kind of maybe deading an, the Maybe there was another bike right there. But we don't, we, we don't that need one to in. speculate about what we don't know. But the controversy is based on what we do know. That's what's in the video. And what's in the video is that you hear the black man saying repeatedly, I'm not touching you. I think it's my bike. It's my bike. I'm not touching you. It's my bike. Now, it seems like he might have been wrong. It seems like he was wrong in this situation. But you see, hear him repeatedly articulating his argument, like, this is my bike. Why are you taking my bike? I heard nothing. We just rewatched the minute 30 long, uh, second long clip before this segment. The, the uh, Comrie did not say, this is my bike. She didn't say, no, 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 look on my phone. I, it's my bike. There were no arguments being made. And I think that why the video went so viral is because she started shouting, help, help, which is what you would do if you felt threatened as opposed to if you've had a dispute over a bike. You would use your words. You would talk to someone. You would say, oh, there's a misunderstanding. Let's compare our phones. And so I do, to your point, I'm not sure what led up to this point, but many people viewing the video perceived it as her kind of weaponizing her status as a woman, as a white woman in a confrontation with black men to get the help of other people around who would instinctively take her side because there are perceptions of who black men are and what they're up to. And that's what people were so frustrated about, the, how she appears to start crying in the video and then stop crying in a way that, according to the black man, we don't, I can't see that in that level of detail, didn't actually produce any tears on her face. It seemed arguably performative. And even if she was correct in this instance, I think a lot of people are still going to think, even if it was your bike, the way that you went about trying to make your case seemed to be exploiting tropes about female, white female vulnerability, black male aggression, instead of using your words and in doing so in that way could have put those black men in a dangerous situation as well. I think, I think we ought to be a lot more careful because of all the times we've seen short little clips of how things went in public and it turns out with full context it was a little bit different or more ambiguous. 
of making any judgment. About, I think people are seeing what they want to see in this interaction. Maybe that is the way it went. I don't know. And my op the way I operate now when I like see viral clips online on Twitter or TikTok or wherever of things like this, I just say, okay. It's not really any of my business, and I'd like more context, and I'm glad well, neither of the people well, are what harmed. Do you, what do you make, Robbie? Do you remember the Central Park uh, birder incident where there was a black male birder whose dog was off leash or something, and the uh, the white woman, Alice, uh, Amy Cooper, Alice mm -hmm. Cooper, Amy Cooper said specifically, and this was caught on camera, I'm going to I'm going to call the cops, and I am going to tell them there's an African American man here. She seemed to understand that. If she called the cops and told them it was her versus an African-American man, that that was somehow boosting her argument, boosting her credibility. And that's part of what people felt was so abhorrent about that particular exchange. Maybe his dog shouldn't have been off leash. Maybe that was a violation of the law. But again, it wasn't the underlying issue there. It was the fact that this woman seemed to understand that she could weaponize her own status as a white woman to have credibility in an exchange with a black man in a way that people found to be very distasteful. It was distasteful. It was definitely wrong of her to call the police. It seemed like there was a long simmering resentment between these two people over how this this dog use slash bird watching space was going to be. Look, people fight with their neighbors, right? But, they but fight Robbie, with their. You, you're skipping over the part where she specifically is like, "I'm going to tell the police there's a black guy here." Yeah, that was really wrong. She suffered. She lost her job for that. She, I think, she was charged with filing a police report. And would you say she that actually that's suffered weaponizing her race? And, and exploiting yes. understanding of, of racial bias to make her point and to try to get an edge out? Sure. I mean, she suffered consequences beyond what the victim in the case, what the guy wanted right. her to suffer. Right. But, but here's the thing, Robbie, just to stay here in the moment of who did the bad thing in this instance. We can have conversations about whether or not the punishment that was meted out was appropriate, but that always seems to ally the underlying issue and the underlying reason why we keep having interactions like this. Is, are we seeing repeatedly in the Amy Cooper case, potentially in this Scooter case, in the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jamal Bowman case, multiple instances of a pattern that black people, I would argue, are very familiar with and don't have to be convinced of, but a pattern of white women who may or may not be in the wrong in any given instance, specifically trying to exploit their vulnerability, their perceived vulnerability as white women to win arguments, not on the basis of the argument, but on the basis of their perceived vulnerability. Again, I have no idea if that's what happened in this case because it's a short viral clip. I think that's people are projecting onto that, but I can't make any judgment that that is the case because I haven't seen the rest of the footage. Right. Well, I would I would love to hear the woman in this case. Amy Cooper, you know, she acted behaved very badly, and the mountain of hell came down on her as a consequence. I would love to see if this woman in this case could have conversations and reflect and unpack, and the, and the gentleman in this case also, if they could talk through where the miscommunication happened and if they have regrets about how quick to judgment they were in both directions on this case. Because I agree with you, I, I hate seeing so much of this on my timeline. It does seem like there's a real appetite for these kind of conflict videos out in the social yes. media space. And I take your point about the needing to record interactions with the police. I think that's a beneficial thing for people to do, independent of your race. Um, sure. yeah, absolutely. It's good to have accountability for interactions with the police, but for I, I see what you're, I know what you're saying. I, I get it, but I, I feel I think we're all a little bit surveilled, even by each other, and there's not a lot of room for um, for the the tensions Race. that yeah. that that. Yeah, I, yeah, I've seen people, you know, fight about a parking space in a yeah. grocery store parking lot. Again, people of all, people of yeah. all races 
being right and wrong and and Look, and, and, and for you to everybody has a bad day, sure. and now your bad day can be the front page of the internet sure. and have very profound and lasting consequences for you. Sure. Even if, even without all the facts, even without you know full comprehension, some you know some some of these cases, some of these cancelings have you know they've been really wrong and really unfair. The you know the what was the woman on the plane flight the plane. to Africa, the yeah. infamous example. Um, they, they, you know, there's everything in between, right? There's, there's. Well, it was kind of bad, but it wasn't so bad. Your whole life needs to be destroyed. There's, it wasn't bad at all, and people totally took it out of contents. There's, it was just as bad as it looks, and you really ought to have suffered something. Yeah. But it's hard to tell yeah, from the 30 seconds we see. I think there's a world see. where, even though I appreciate why folks do film, and I think largely it's a good idea, there's a world where perhaps her reaction and unwillingness to kind of use her words and explain and talk mm -hmm. to people like rational human being. Um, was undermined by the fact that she's being filmed. I do think that, that when you start to get on camera, some people's heckles rise and it escalates situations that might otherwise not have been escalated. So I, I think that that might be true. And it, it speaks to me to be a broader, a broader problem that we're having that's a lack of community in this country that's percolating through in a lot of political contexts, a lack of trust and a lack of community. Not sure what to do about that, but I'd be very interested to see what happens with both of the figures in this story uh, going forward. I'd love, to, I'd love to see a real teaching moment, a real solidarity moment. I won't be holding my breath. <laughs> More rising after this. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has announced that he will be running for the Republican nomination for president in 2024, throwing his hat into the ring with former President Donald Trump and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Here he is kicking off his first rally. We live in the land of opportunity. We live in the land where it is absolutely possible for a kid raised in poverty in a single-parent household in a small apartment to one day serve in the people's house and maybe even the White House. <laughs> this, this is the greatest nation on God's green earth. Today I'm thinking back to my grandfather born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, in the Deep South. By the time he was in the third grade, he was forced out of school, his education was over, and he was forced to start picking cotton. But my grandfather lived long enough to watch his grandson pick out a seat in Congress. Former President Trump has already weighed in on the announcement, saying, quote, Good luck to Senator Tim Scott in entering the Republican presidential primary race. It is rapidly loading up with lots of people, and Tim is a big step up from Ron DeSanctimonious, who is totally unelectable. Un un I got Opportunity Zones done with Tim, a big deal that has been highly successful. Good luck, Tim. Notably, Elon Musk retweeted Scott's announcement. So it's officially Trump, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and we didn't mention, but should Vivek Ramaswamy, um, independent businessman, also running uh, for the nomination. Uh, so Trump and, and Ron DeSantis expected to eventually get in. Trump <laughs> using the opportunity of Tim, Sc uh, Tim Scott entering to say nice things about Tim Scott and bash Ron DeSantis, I think shows you strategically what is going on here. I think Tim Scott, very much like Nikki Haley, is running for the vice presidential slot. Um, 
Unlike Nikki Haley, I think he is a plausible vice presidential pick for, honestly, either Trump or DeSantis or mm -hmm. whoever gets the nomination. Um, I, I should note, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, so they're from the same state. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott to the Senate mm -hmm. uh, to replace uh, outgoing Senator Jim DeMint, mm -hmm. who was retiring uh, to become president of the Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not president of the Heritage Foundation currently. That was years and years ago. So she put Tim Scott in that position, and now they're both running. Um, interesting. As I said, Tim Scott could be a vice presidential pick, certainly. Uh, for, I mean, there's the diversity aspect of it. He is genuinely, seems to be well-liked. Um, he has a high, I mean, he doesn't have high uh, uh, recognition, I don't think, among Democrats or really, really anyone, frankly, but he seems to garner high approval mm -hmm. um, with his story, his origin story, which he did come from uh, mm -hmm. pretty extreme poverty, did work his, his way up to, to being in politics, um, worked very hard. His parents split when he was young. He lived with his grandparents. His grandfather had a huge impression on him, um, and he's made, you know, made his way all along. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's the kind of identity-based narrative building that Democrats have engaged in for a really long time. You know, historically, voters from across the political spectrum who have working-class interests at heart sometimes say, I don't know if your particular rags-to-riches story is really reflective of how, how much you as a leader are going to be able to make that outcome more common for so many Americans who, of course, do work very, very hard and struggle their entire lives and never manage to reach that kind of success. And I think that's the question he's going to have to answer for American voters, just like all of the other candidates are going to have to answer it as well. Yeah, on, From a on policy poli perspective, he's been, um, uh, he's a critique, a critic of uh, Obamacare, wants to repeal Obamacare. He was a critic of the Afghanistan war withdrawal. He thought it was going to be a boon for al-Qaeda and advocated for staying in the country longer, which is in conflict with some of the anti-war sentiment that is percolating both on the right and, and the far left and creating opportunities for candidates like RFK Jr. And, and so from a policy perspective, I think that that story is only going to take him so far, especially since Republican voters tend to be kind of red-pilled on those identity politics narratives. Policy—that's true. Policy-wise, he's a pretty standard-issue Republican. I, I would not say he's particularly in the new— populist mold. Um, he's kind of a—I think he's a more, you know, opportunity—he'll he, he'll use the need to create economic opportunity is something he talks about a lot. Um, so, I, so I don't know. But, uh, but he's—it's he, interesting. He's a popular figure. He's yeah. going to make some kind of impact. Donald Trump welcoming him to the race is very indicative. But even—honestly, yeah. even a Ron DeSantis could pick him. So I, I think he's got a, a good shot at being the, the VP pick, Look, regardless of who's I think it's who, a hilarious troll. I think there's something uh, very fitting if the Republican nominee, whomever they are, ends up saying, I have my own black VP, and mm. kind of undercutting Obama—sorry, uh, uh, Joe Biden's ability and the Democrats' ability to make some of these uh, diversity arguments. I noticed that uh, Tim Scott gave uh, a speech during the RNC in 2020 that was very compelling, and many commentators pointed out that the RNC that year was incredibly diverse um, and really took head on some of the uh, cultural conversations about uh, police violence, et cetera, in a way that— I think was mm -hmm. rather adept, uh, was, was, was rather 
tactful and good and seem to be uh, signaling a shift in Republican politics to really embracing some of the identity framing that Democrats have been using for a really long time. And Tim Scott was front and center for that project. Well, another big aspect of his identity is that he is an evangelical Protestant Christian, um, talks a lot about uh, religious values. If it becomes the case that Donald Trump needs to shore up his support a little bit with the evangelicals, yeah. given the kinds of things he's been saying lately about about abortion, um, indicating that he thinks you know the repeal Roe v. Wade hurt, that maybe some Republicans, including Ron DeSantis, have gone too far. Um, I, Tim Scott is a you know faith and freedom kind of Republican. Um, he's uh, he's it's 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 that that could help. Yeah, it says um, you know, he identifies as pro-life. Uh, he's unmarried. That's interesting. He's, <laughs> he's unmarried. a single guy. Um, he opposes tax-funded embryonic stem cell research, which used to be a big issue that nobody seems to really care about that much. Opposes assisted suicide and same-sex marriage. I mean, you're right that this is a very this is very conservative, uh, typical, you know, bog-standard uh, Republican stuff here. South Carolina has no has no wives in the Senate because uh, Lindsey Graham is also unmarried. So there's no oh, so the two. I've never thought of it. It's just interesting. <laughs> Two senators representing, or Republican senators representing South Carolina. No, uh, it's, it's a bro club. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on with the, with the options out of South Carolina on the uh, on the dating on the dating circuit? Anyway, one one other thing to note is that part of why Trump might be welcoming uh, Tim Scott with open arms is that polls suggest that he's not very much of a threat. At this point, this is from a Newsweek piece from two days ago, Trump commands uh, more than 53 percent of the Republican electorate's support in aggregate polling by 538. DeSantis is the next closest challenger at a shade under 21 percent. And a hypothetical head-to-head matchup, Trump polls well ahead of Scott with the survey, uh, the Harris Harvard-Harris survey that we've been talking about all day, uh, it shows Trump with a 79-21 advantage over mm -hmm. Scott in a two-person contest. Well, and again, every entrant into the race subtracts not from Trump, but from DeSantis. Mm -hmm. So now we have—now now there were four. We're going to have DeSantis get in, probably. Mike Pence has given every indication he is going to get in. Uh, Chris Christie has suggested he might get in. You get to—that's seven. You get to eight, nine, ten candidates— Donald Trump is virtually guaranteed to be renominated. Yeah, we'll see if the Republicans get it together and, you know, uh, rig the primary the way the Democrats so effectively did, where they put their heads together and said, look, none of us is emerging ahead of Trump. we got to force everyone to drop out and consolidate behind one non-Trump alternative. That's how they were able to defeat Bernie Sanders in 2020. Let's see if the Republicans get their act together, because they definitely declined to do that in 2016. Mm. Not that I'm not, that sounded like I was advocating for that, <laughs> or get their act together. But to the extent that there are these anti-Trump uh, establishment Republicans, that seems to be the path forward for them. For sure. More rising right after this. Just 40% of Democratic respondents say they'd vote for President Biden if the party's 2024 primary was held today. That's according to a new Harvard Caps Harris poll. Now, curiously, respondents were given a list of hypothetical primary frontrunners to choose from, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was not on the list at all. Now, this list did include Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, AOC, Gavin Newsom, Amy Klobuchar, Stacey Abrams, Marianne Williamson, who is actually running against Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Manchin, and Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> uh, 
Are they forgetting somebody? <laughs> somebody who's actually polling with like 20%? 20% of the vote. Um, now, I don't know if there's any, a simple explanation to this, like they conducted this poll before he had entered the race, but there's some pretty speculative people on there. Most like Andrew Cuomo's not in the race, exactly. right? Amy Klobuchar's not in the race. Exactly. Uh, so I, I don't think Stacey that's Abrams? an excuse. Stacey Abrams? <laughs> I mean, Kamala Harris also, to be clear, is 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 Biden's VP yes. and is yes. very much not running against yeah. Joe Biden either. So it, Hello. It, it, it's an absurd <laughs> list. It's hard. And this isn't the first time this has happened, right? We've obviously covered a number of other times uh, in the last month or two that these candidates have even been in play where they have been very visibly left off of lists and left out of articles. They used to always leave, um, leave my boy Ron Paul off, uh, <laughs> off the list back in, uh, back in 2008, even yeah. though yeah, informally he would was polling very high. He was the preferred candidate of, of veterans, actually, and he was mm. out there saying that he wanted to end all the wars. And you know, Rudy Giuliani would say, like, you're a traitor to our country. And he said, <laughs> actually, all the people who actually over, who serve overseas, they agree with me. Yeah. Um, and he was a, a case of him just getting totally ignored by mainstream. I mean, it's, it's even more galling given you know the stat we read up top about how many Democratic voters don't actually want to vote for Joe Biden and who are looking for an alternative. I'm telling you, I'm having this conversation over and over again with. People who are pretty firmly Democrats, these are not kind of the rebellious, independent, left-leaning Bernie types who wanted to stick it to the system back in 2016 or not 2020. The <laughs> not, not the Brianna's. Not the me's. I'm talking to older family members mm -hmm. and friends who just are not very confident that Biden can win, who are concerned about his mental state, who are concerned about his vitality, who are disappointed by some of the policy choices that he's made. You know, the, the continued problems at the border, a child just died in custody, who are confronted with the hypocrisy of kids in cages and now nobody cares when Joe Biden's in charge, the oil drilling in Alaska. These are normie Democratic voters who want an alternative. And what we're seeing is increasingly their preferences are trickling out onto mainstream television in a way that cannot be contained despite these sorts of admissions. This was a really interesting panel that I saw recently on Fox News where they asked some voters what, how much being anti-war was a priority of theirs and who they thought best represented that particular interest. Let's take a look. Maybe it makes you a bit different than everybody else on the panel as you're undecided, have in the past been a Democrat, have at times described yourself as a conservative. Here we are 18 months out. As you look at the field for 2024, where do you find yourself gravitating? Well, I definitely want to vote for somebody that's against this war and against future wars, uh, unnecessary wars. I know they're slow walking a war, a war against China. I mean, we've got to control China, but economically, not a kinetic war. But on that note, yes. if that's your number one issue, who do you feel like is addressing it in the way you want to see addressed this war? Right. Well, right now, Robert Kennedy is the only one speaking against this war. So I'm intrigued. I haven't made up my mind, but I'm intrigued because I want to hear more of this. Not what Biden said this morning, right. $375 more million. President Trump went through his whole entire tenure with zero wars, so he should be one of the top candidates to consider as well. He talks a lot about security and keeping Americans safe. He talks a lot about fairness and protecting the American people, so I right. think he should be the top-of-line candidate to be considered. Okay, we've had a great conversation with this panel throughout the morning. Maybe make sure... Fascinating. It's fascinating. The name keeps coming up. Now, I think what was really interesting about that as well is that that particular voter was frustrated with 
all of the wars. He doesn't want to see us gin up a, I think he called it a kinetic war, you know, an all-out war with China, nor does he want to see our continued involvement in Russia-Ukraine. That is notably a different position than many Republicans who are self-described anti-war Republicans have taken, where they have been very critical of the Russia-Ukraine war, but have supported Biden's war military budget and have been antagonizing uh, and, uh, and seemingly pushing for an escalation with China. We saw that when we talked to Marjorie Taylor Greene just a few weeks ago on the show, and I asked her specifically, would be willing to make any cuts to Biden's unprecedentedly large $800 billion defense budget? She gave a clear no. And it's, it will be interesting to me to see if voters start to disentangle who is really kind of comprehensively anti-war and who is more performatively anti-Ukraine war because they want to shift resources elsewhere on the globe. And Trump was not comprehensively against war either, um, obviously, you know, authorized the taking out of Soleimani, just one of the many things that happened over the course of his presidency that were contrary to his stated goals of, of breaking with the kind of Republican consensus on foreign policy. That said, uh, you know, he did he did uh, vocally break with it in a way that uh, no other Republican candidate yeah. would have been bold enough to do, and is now, uh, I, I think, because of the role he played over the course of his presidency, is the side more associated with a, a kind of non-interventionism, at least. I yeah. mean, Joe Biden's party uh, is—and it didn't have to be like this, because Joe Biden actually started his presidency by following through on what Donald Trump had set up, the, the Afghanistan withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And— and he did that. Uh, you know, consequences be damned. He did that. Mm -hmm. He got us out of that conflict. So he didn't. In, in fact, there was a moment where it looked like he was going to get the. He was going to be the president finally, mm -hmm. because he had so much experience. Because he'd been in the White House when Pre President Obama and Hillary Clinton, you know, duplicated all the mistakes of, of previous Republicans in terms of nation building in the Middle East, et cetera. Maybe Joe Biden, because he'd seen it firsthand mm -hmm. so many times, was going to be the one to call BS on what national security advisors were telling him. Yeah. And with Afghanistan, it looked like it was going to be the way for a second. Then with Ukraine, he got rolled just as they as they always have been into a position of endlessly supporting this uh, this this resistance to Russian tyranny, don't get us wrong, that is naive about the likelihood of Ukraine ever succeeding, that is open-ended total commitment to defend them, to give them resources for as long as it takes, no matter what it takes, that kind of unthinking us versus them mentality, these are the good guys, we're going to prop them up, we're going to support them, we're not going to ask questions beyond that, that, that so characterized mm -hmm. uh, Republican foreign policy uh, throughout the aughts. And now it's it's Joe Biden echoing that yeah, well, and this, Republicans the, somewhere else. The cynical read is that, you know, Joe Biden did not get rolled. The cynical read, and some people were making this argument at the time, that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a preservation of resources for another conflict, just the way that, I think, for some um, so-called anti-war advocates, their distaste with the Russia-Ukraine, our involvement in the Russia-Ukraine conflict has to do with them wanting to conserve resources for a war with China or something else. And, you know, there are long—you know, this, this region— uh, Russia, Ukraine, Crimea, there's long-standing issues here. And, you know, there's an argument that Joe Biden did not get rolled, that the, and the United States have, has geopolitical interests here. There are all the provocations that we've talked about endlessly on the show with respect to NATO expansion, et cetera. But there's a certain known quality about what kind of geopolitical moves are going to yield a certain kind of result. Not that that result is good or that they're entitled to invade Ukraine or You're anything saying like he that. knows exactly what he's he doing. Exactly. He wants to escalate tensions with Russia. He wants to return to a kind of Cold War 
footing with the Nord Stream pipeline of it all, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, in fact, in a when I say he got a role, what I mean is listens listens to just, national just, security just, advisors yeah. who are you know who are creatures of the state sure. who give this advice no matter it's an rd sure. in the white house who's saying this is what we have to do you know it's beyond party this is for america yeah, damn and it. I, I wondered if anyone was going to pick up on this actually in uh, rfk jr's recent interview on breaking points he characterized uh, us as having gotten to the war for the right reasons at first and I wondered if anybody was going to push back against that and that characterization, which seems to give Joe Biden more credit than I think others might and others might mm. expect RFK Jr. to give to him as to why we um, started in this process, uh, getting engaged in this war, um, all of the mechanisms that we know from the Victoria Newland call and our intervention into their civil conflicts, their domestic conflicts, et cetera. You know, is that really reflective of his understanding of what happened in Ukraine and how this conflict started? Was that just a slip of the tongue? I don't know. But I do think there's clearly a healthy appetite from American voters to hear more from all of these candidates about their perspective on all of the wars that are ongoing and that are potentially sure. um, coming down the transom. And we're not getting a lot of that specifically from Joe Biden, who again has said there will be no debates so and far. We, and we find out time and time again that everyday Americans do not share the foreign policy views of the elites, of the elite members of both parties, that they are more skeptical, that they're more America first by orientation, mm -hmm. that they do tend to see kind of a zero-sum game in terms of resources going elsewhere, not resources being used at home. And they, they, the American public soured on Iraq, Afghanistan, all, all these other things. Before Vietnam, we can go back. You know, go back to uh, the Democratic Party undone by the Vietnam War because it, it couldn't just admit uh, the people in charge. At least other Democratic candidates were eventually starting to court a different path. But uh, R, R, RFK Jr. is his his his, uh, his family, right? Um, uh, uh, Bobby uh, Bobby Kennedy, you know, running to be finally have someone be against Vietnam. This this very successful challenge yeah. to LBJ that causes him to drop out of of the race entirely because the people were not where the party was. Yeah. And this dynamic has repeated itself so many times. So interesting to see if that's the case again. Yeah, for sure. More rising right after this. New reporting from the Wall Street Journal reveals that sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, quote, appeared to threaten Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates over the billionaire's alleged affair with a Russian bridge player. Epstein reportedly met the woman in 2013, who the Wall Street Journal identified as Mila Antonova, while Gates met her around 2010. Now, Epstein reportedly paid for her to attend software coding school. Then in 2017, Epstein sent an email to Gates asking to be reimbursed for the cost of the course. Again, that's according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, this email came after Epstein failed to convince Gates to participate in a charitable fund that Epstein attempted to solidify with JPMorgan Chase. According to people who have viewed the message, the implication was that, quote, Epstein could reveal the affair if Gates didn't keep up association between the two men. Mr. Gates met with Epstein solely for philanthropic purposes, having failed repeatedly to draw Mr. Gates beyond those matters. Epstein tried unsuccessfully to leverage a past relationship to threaten Mr. Gates, according to a spokesman for Gates. According to The Wall Street Journal, cultural editor at The Federalist, 
Emily Jashinsky tweeted, most important part of that Wall Street Journal story, Gates spokesperson confirms the affair and confirms their interpretation of Epstein's conduct was blackmail. It obviously looks like blackmail, but that Gates is publicly confirming as much is pretty meaningful. Anatova declined to comment on Gates and said she did not know who Epstein was when they met. Hmm. Right. So this is a very interesting development for a couple of reasons. One, Gates's apparent readiness to confirm the blackmail, even if it also confirms the, the affair, seemed to speak to people's reluctance to be associated in any ambiguous way with Jeffrey Epstein. Because, of course, the more serious implication is not mm -hmm. just that you had an affair, but that you were participating with in the conduct with underage right. girls. Well, and he's already—the divorce is happening. It's happened. They're split, right. so he does, I think right. there's not it. He's like, okay, to be clear, yeah. it's just an affair. We can all, you know, move past that. That's a very common and human thing that people engage with. The other thing, though, is the way that these financial transactions have been going on in, in these kind of clandestine ways, paying for this service, getting reimbursed for these other kind of services. I do think it raises some questions about another recent story that we talked about with um, Noam Chomsky, who had these kind of inscrutable, difficult to understand money transfers that were managed by Jeffrey Epstein, which he claims you know, had nothing to do with, again, anything with young girls or anything untoward, but he was just helping him manage his finances in a rather straightforward way. When you look at the way that money is being moved to cover blackmail payments in this situation, I do think it's going to raise implications for people uh, about other, other ways that Epstein has been involved in people's personal finances that, that have been, up until this point, rather inscrutable. Absolutely. And this is another example of what is believed to be Epstein's uh, kind of modus operandi is to, is to have people become um, uh, compromised mm -hmm. and then to leverage that against them. That looks like, again, exactly what he tried to do there. He knew something. He brought it up again because he wanted this extended financial partnership um, with Bill Gates. And, the, yeah, the covering coding lessons is very reminiscent of the of what Chomsky said, moving, help me moving funds mm -hmm. because I lost I, my wife and mm -hmm. I didn't know where they were. There was the college president who said, mm -hmm. help me pay for a poetry endowment or something yeah, like some that. It was endowment. something collect, uh, uh, connected to a poem. Yeah, but in all of these instances, I mean, the underlying question is why Epstein is right. doing this. Why, why would Bill Gates just have just, just pay for the coding class? Right, could he not himself? afford it with his hundred yeah. odd billion dollars worth of wealth? No, of course that, of I course know. not. Um, and why not just if you want to give a donation? Maybe his wife goes over the goes over all the all the payments or something. Be like, who's this girl you're paying for? <laughs> no, but the the endowment to the university also. Why not just give an endowment yeah. directly? Either you're trying to hide that it's from Epstein, which is in and of itself a problem for the university accepting these funds if that was an underlying issue, but also is it something even more than that? And and no. so I, the, we can only live in the speculative place for so long before I think people are going to start drawing their own conclusions. And for that reason, I can understand why Bill Gates seemingly is just wanting to get out in front of this and say, yeah, I admit it, but I only admit to this portion of it. It's, it's a very different response in the one we got from Chomsky, which was more or less, this is none of your business, yeah. but out. And I don't think that that's helpful to Chomsky to the extent that he's trying to get past this or clear his name. Uh, what else did, uh, what other dirt did Epstein have on people? And was he trying to leverage his, uh, his, his dirt on people in other contexts? And um, what was he trying to get? And was he trying to get himself did he have dirt on law enforcement type people, political figures who could help prevent or thwart any prosecution into him or who helped get him the very sweetheart deal in the first place? Again, convicted of sexual misconduct with a minor, ended up, 
I think serving it under house arrest with like an ankle monitor, it was a sounded like a pleasant vacation, not 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 a not the normal criminal. You know, he didn't get sent to prison. He didn't that kind of thing the first time, um, and then it took so long to have anything happen the second time. You know, raising the possibility, did he have his had he he sunk his teeth into uh, or his claws into significant portions of the of the federal government, or the state governments, the, the relevant yeah. local authorities. J.P. Morgan Chase, the Virgin Islands, yeah. to get himself off the hook for as long as possible. So this is this is coming out. These emails are coming out because they're correspondence with J.P. Morgan Chase and as part of that litigation, as I understand it, which really speaks to how explosive this could be in the same way that this Dominion lawsuit is explosive. So much stuff that we know about behind the scenes wranglings in many contexts do, does, does end up coming out of lawsuits. And I don't have to tell you that people have all kinds of feelings about Epstein's death and what actually caused it and if it was in fact a suicide. But the implication there, the argument that it was not a suicide is that if he starts to talk, too many people are gonna go down with him. Yeah. And I wonder if people are looking at this lawsuit as similarly threatening exposure of extremely powerful people on a very broad basis. Certainly Bill Gates becoming an early casualty of sorts of this discovery of these disclosures is pretty significant and I think a, a good reason to continue to follow that lawsuit very closely. We are going to continue to follow it closely and I uh, have to again congratulate the Wall Street Journal which is doing just fantastic reporting on Epstein's financial connections to important powerful people and they, they've not let this story lapse. They're still, they're still covering it um, and it's really uh, and they're getting like scoops like original they're looking close more closely at the documents than anyone else is and they're they've been virtually the only people doing that so it's uh it's great to see them doing great reporting you know, on that. some some high praise for established media every now and again we'll That's call right. balls and strikes we'll call them like yeah. we see them i don't like how hard it is to log into their website and get around their paywall you were being thwarted by I, that just I now i subscribe but. and i couldn't get in to read this article i had to pivot over to the guardian and read their coverage mm, mm, for mm. what it's worth well there it is. Tomorrow on Rising, we will be back with another fantastic show for you. A fun-tabulous <laughs> show. That's the word I wanted to use in the introduction. Yeah. We had some technical issues, and it didn't make it into my second draft. So sad. You have to catch up on Succession so we can talk about it I do. Tomorrow. It's a very important part of our uh, dynamic here on the desk is that we can freely discuss Succession without any curbing of our respective speech rights here because I don't want spoilers. <laughs> yes. I'll be back up to date tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow.